Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Ramita Ayer, research analyst at the Institute. In India's union budget speech this year, Finance Minister Nirmala Sitaraman announced the country's plans to launch a sovereign digital rupee and also proposed to tax earnings from digital assets. These announcements reflect the beginning of India's efforts to embrace digital currencies as the next step in the evolution of digital financial transformation in the country. In this episode, we will be delving into the latest developments regarding digital currencies. If you're interested in understanding cryptocurrencies and its growth in India, I recommend listening to episode 118 titled Cryptocurrency Boom in India. Today to discuss India's digital currencies and its future, we have with us Dr. Amitendu Palit, Senior Research Fellow and Research Lead, Trade and Economics at ISAS. Welcome to South Asia Chat, Dr. Palit. Thank you so much, Ramita. Right, so the government's rationale for introducing its central bank digital currency, or CBDC in short, is that it will give a big boost to the digital economy and also make the currency management system more efficient. Can you tell us more about these benefits and how you see it panning out? Thank you, Ramita. I think the first point to be noted is that uh, we have got an affirmation in the budget that India is uh, formally going to introduce uh, what we call a central bank digital currency. And central bank digital currencies are different from uh, other privately owned and functional digital currencies that we are aware of, which are typically referred to as cryptocurrencies. And this is where uh, it's going to be called a sovereign digital currency. It will have the backing of the Central Bank of India. It will be connected to the reserves and uh, the rest of the other fundamentals. But beyond this understanding till now, uh, we really don't have much information about uh, how the government is going to go about it because the functional control of it will be with the Reserve Bank of India. Now, uh, this announcement uh, comes in the backdrop of uh, a situation where there has been a lot of uh, controversy in India over digital currencies. And the Reserve Bank of India has not been in favor of private digital currencies. In fact, it banned those currencies. Subsequently, the ban was overturned by the Supreme Court of India. Then there were efforts uh, by the legislature to actually uh, go ahead and discover a roadmap for digital currencies in India. A bill to that extent has been introduced in the parliament. It's still pending. But what would be a sign of relief uh, for several, uh, I would say, uh, private digital currency owners as well as those who firmly believe that uh, digital currencies are the way forward in so far as uh, internal and external payments are concerned, is that the government of India has put a green signal on the issue of digital currencies. And as you mentioned, a digital currency, a sovereign digital currency is actually the last and final step for ensuring the transformation to a cashless society. India has been working on this like so many other countries are for a very long time. But once a digital currency comes out, which has the sovereign backing and sanctity, then one expects there will be much more confidence among the users in uh, adapting to this digital currency and using it for a daily purpose. What are the potential risks and challenges that you foresee with the introduction of the sovereign digital rupee? 
The first issue, I think, is that of uh, data because uh, digital currencies across the world and till now we have uh, nine countries which have introduced this formally. There are seven countries from the Caribbean um, islands, uh, Bahama and Nigeria who have used them. There are 15 currencies which are at an advanced pilot stage and they have been experimenting with the digital currencies. Uh, the digital currency, typically like a paper currency, will have two roles. Uh, the first role is uh, perhaps that of a wholesale function where it is going to be confined between the central bank as well as other banks uh, for taking care of the banking intermediary functions. But there is a much bigger role which is expected from digital currencies and that is in retail transactions. That is when consumers actually get to use the digital currencies, they walk through their digital wallets and they utilize it for retail payments. The problem over here is that any digital transaction will involve a certain amount of data. Uh, the decision over how much of data needs to be used up, personal data, for ensuring and enabling digital transactions is a view uh, that needs to be debated because uh, India's problem in this regard is that India is yet to come out with an internal data management template. Uh, the distinction between uh, personal data and non-personal data, the issues with respect to privacy are yet to be brought or bundled into a legal framework in India. So to that extent, this will be a handicap. The other handicap that uh, might come is that to what extent are the users of the country prepared for using digital currencies? Like we know that, uh, you know, it's very common knowledge that unless and until at least you have a smartphone, it's not going to be very easy. Uh, to use the digital currencies for day-to-day -day functionings and that brings us to the question of digital divide and to what extent the population is enabled. Now, um, there is also the question of uh, having access to the bandwidth and, uh, you know, uh, data mobility. There are examples of where countries other than India are trying to overcome this issue. But having said that, uh, given a country like India, which is big, large and very heterogeneous in so far as capabilities and capacities and access to data and digital processes are concerned. Uh, there is a apprehension that in the beginning at least the digital currency might not be a very inclusive instrument. Focusing now a bit more on privately held uh, digital currencies or cryptocurrencies as they are called. It was recently observed that India has the largest number of crypto holders in the world. Um, we're seeing that at a time when the government is developing its own CBDC, it is uh, also trying to take a tough stance on cryptocurrencies. Uh, it's where it's currently working towards regulation. Uh, so do you see any tensions in both of these coexisting in India? And uh, how do you see the announcement impacting the crypto market? There is certainly a tension. There's no denying that. I think the, uh, the view that the Reserve Bank of India has, and also a large number of regulators, is the fact that uh, digital currencies, whenever they're private, uh, they are uh, going to create a high degree of volatility and instability in currency management. And the simple uh, example of that is, let's say, for example, a digital currency which can be used as a medium of exchange. Let us say for any retail purpose, uh, ordering a couple of burgers and chips from McDonald's, for example. Because of the volatility, the 
amount of burgers which can be obtained in the morning using a particular digital currency can vary from what it can be uh, permissible in the evening or the day after or the day before. Now, this is the kind of volatility which makes it rather difficult for the financial system to continue to remain stable. However, there are ways of avoiding this. But Again, it is to be understood that this volatility is only with respect to one particular role of the digital currencies where they are used as a medium for exchange. The argument that is shaping up is that if this particular role of private digital currencies is taken away and they are allowed to be held as assets, which is actually what the general proclivity right now is, and you very rightly mentioned that India has the largest number of crypto owners, cryptos in India are now being primarily looked at as assets. But even as assets, they are subject to volatility, but that is a personal choice. So I think increasingly the view that is being taken is that let people hold on to private digital currencies as assets and not use them as a medium of exchange. That function will not be enabled to them. That role will be left to the sovereign digital currencies which are run by the Reserve Bank of India. And I think if we look at uh, recent announcements that are coming out from, let us say, a country like Thailand, Thailand has taken this step where they are not allowing retail use of private digital currencies, but they're allowing them to be hold as assets. The issue, Ramita, over here is that if we look at a country like India, and India is not an exception in this regard, there are many emerging markets, the connection to cryptocurrencies is very high, the organic connection. And I think uh, the fact that India has the largest number of crypto users in the world is actually a reflection of the fact that the extent by which users, I mean, there could be certain demographies, there could be certain age profiles, there could be certain income profiles. The fact of the matter is that People in India, certain parts of India, have got very, very used to cryptocurrencies. So it is going to be extremely difficult to deny them that access going ahead because over time they really need to be used in such a way that various forms of digital currencies coexist. I mean, there is no problem with that. Countries are really trying to look at an option in this regard. The United States is trying to bring out a framework. There are other currencies, including Singapore, who are trying to work at a coexisting framework. But I think the challenge will be uh, for countries like India, where digitalization itself is not totally exclusive. That how do you make digital currencies become a part of your daily lives and that too, two different forms of digital currencies. So I think it's an evolutionary process. But one has to accept the fact that this is the future. And keeping that in mind, uh, the authorities and regulators really have to work towards as much of an enabling coexistence as is possible. Uh, so another aspect that came out in the budget was that of uh, taxes. Uh, it was announced that there would be a 30% tax on any income from the transfer of digital assets and a 1% TDS, which is tax deducted at source, on all virtual digital asset transfers. What do you make of this announcement? Well, for all practical purposes, the budget did not mention the term cryptocurrencies. But without mentioning it, if uh, the uh, references to virtual digital assets uh, that will be taxed with respect to the gains they accrue, then I guess the intrinsic understanding is that there are 
private digital currencies which are being used as assets and the owners of those currencies are engaging in transactions with these assets which are fetching them capital gains. And those gains are going to be taxed, including the TDS. Now, the understanding in this regard, and there has been some confusion on this, that does this actually mean that uh, private digital currencies or cryptocurrencies in India are being legalized? Uh, the conceptual underpinning in this regard is that, well, how can something which is not legal be taxed by a sovereign authority? Though the Ministry of Finance has issued clarifications in this regard that this does not mean that cryptocurrencies are legalized, I think this is a subtle beginning towards a process which begins to think about the construction of a template which will enable the growth and existence of cryptocurrencies in India. And the first and foremost factor in that regard is to ensure that the cryptocurrencies get taxed, which is a way of formalizing them. And the second process in this regard is probably to make the users, the other operators, including the taxation agencies, as well as the intermediaries, like the lawyers, the taxation consultants, the chartered accountants, to become familiar with the system where they have to factor in that income from virtual digital assets will now become an important part of incomes of individuals. And they need to actually get enmeshed into the process of taxing these incomes. So it's a question of familiarizing, it's a question of enabling and laying down the framework for the next steps for hopefully a scientific evolution of a template for cryptocurrencies. Uh, finally, I want to focus on one of the aspects that you mentioned before. So while India may be one of the largest economies to introduce uh, sovereign uh, currency, it is not the first country to do so. There have been several developments across across the world, like you mentioned. So what do you think are the learnings from these early experiences of other countries for India? And where do you see it going? The first point, Ramita, is that I think uh, given the fact that uh, cryptocurrencies could be inherently volatile, I think the challenge that most uh, countries have is uh, to what extent they should allow their use in so far as cross-border uh, transactions are concerned as well as internal retail purposes are concerned. Now, within cryptocurrencies also, there are more stable varieties, uh, which are typically called the stable coins. And the stable coins get their stability from being linked to certain stable parameters like the reserves uh, or a particular uh, currency value. For example, some uh, of these are linked to the United States dollar. Now, uh, the whole point over here is that I think when we shift our attention to the way digital currencies can become a part of people's lives and when central banks actually authorize such currencies and take ownership of those, the first point is to note to what extent they are confident in letting people use this. And that confidence comes from the character of the payment systems in the country, their stability and their familiarity with the people. Uh, we have now around 15 countries which are into the pilot stages of these. And this includes pretty big and large economies, China, Russia, Hong Kong, Korea, uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, among the European countries, Sweden is at a bit pretty advanced stage on this. So the larger expectation is that countries are really serious about the way they are going ahead. 
And the second thing is that if you look at the ways in which the digital currencies are being structured in all these countries, the foremost idea seems to be of a retail function. China, for example, uh, in the latent uh, Winter Olympics at Beijing, actually allowed the retail currency to be used by the overseas visitors for the first time. It's been uh, using it on a pilot basis in a few of the provinces within the mainland. So it's all a question of the extent by which this particular digital currency is becoming a part of prevailing digital payment systems, like say for example the Alipay and others. Similarly, other countries are also in the process. The challenge will be the interoperability. In the sense, if I am uh, ha or the owner of a particular digital currency, maybe the e-Chinese yuan or the e-Indian rupee, to what extent can I use it in cross-border operations with another country? That is a big challenge to be overcome. But my expectation is that this is a factor which has been noted by monetary authorities. Monetary authorities need to talk between themselves. The COVID situation has probably given them an unexpected opportunity where digital currencies have got a boost. The more they talk to them, the easier it will become. There are questions of data issues to be overcome. There are questions of cyber security to be handled. But I think by and large, this is a trend which is irreversible. Thank you for sharing your insights with us, Dr. Palit. My pleasure, Ramita. Thank you so much. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates on our publications, events and podcasts through social media. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. 